You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. It's been so great to hear such positive feedback from students and inspired yogis all over the world who've been tuning into this podcast. So thanks so much for your support. It really means a lot to me. Now, if you want to dive deeper into the yoga journey, I really recommend you check out my new book, Get Your Yoga On. And if you're looking for daily practice support, of course, I'd love for you to join me on omstars.com. Well, this episode is a talk that I gave after a guided primary series that I was teaching for Try Yoga in London virtually. This is a talk I feel that is really appropriate to what many of us might be feeling now. Sometimes there's a feeling of suffering, of senselessness, of helplessness, of hopelessness, whether you think about that from the global perspective or whether you're just going through a hard time yourself. This talk is really aimed at helping you find a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel so that you can apply the lessons that you learn on your yoga mat to making your life a happier and more peaceful place. I hope you enjoy this talk and that it leaves you with a little inspiration to keep practicing and that you leave with a little bit of happiness and peace in your heart. There are many things that at first don't make sense both in your practice and really in life. So there are so many things that when we come into contact with at first may seem confusing, depressing, or even exciting. Now, the teaching on the spiritual journey of yoga is really about staying the course through those ups and downs until it all starts to make sense. You might not see from the perspective that you're looking at what we call what you could call your vantage point, the point from which you're viewing any series of occurrences to understand why something is happening. This can be as simple as why do we have to jump back all these times during the practice? I know I've thought that, you know, why are there all these jump backs? Why can't we just lie down, for example? Why does Marichasana D have to exist? Why are there five Navasanas? Why does it have to be so hard? You know? Well, we can't always appreciate that from the very beginning. It seems like, you know, that the practice was just torture on some level. And similarly, we like to think about the practice as a mirror reflection for life. So those same questions about the practice are sometimes mirrored in life. Why does it have to be so hard? Life, you know? Why do good people suffer? Why do we get sick even though we do everything right? Why, you know, where does suffering come from? What is it doesn't make any sense? You know, we could we could design the world without suffering. We think we would. So it doesn't make sense from where we are. But from a different vantage point, from the vantage point of having traveled through either the journey of life or the journey of practice, then we can understand that both the peaks and the valleys are immensely useful for our 
spiritual evolution. And that if it was only the highs, and if it was only the good times and the ecstasy and the happiness, then we would be one dimensional, almost like a plastic version of ourselves. And that the learning that we would, that we've really come here on this planet to experience wouldn't, wouldn't reach a certain depth. You know, if we only have love and never experience loss, if we only have happiness, never experience sadness, if we only have health and we never even stub our toes, then we miss kind of a depth and a texture. So as the uh, poet William Blake says something that I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not going to say it entirely correctly, but he says, you know, that happiness um, puts, it's like a, happiness puts into our soul, it replenishes our soul, and it's sorrows that bring forth. So when we think about that, it's this unique balance between happiness and sorrow, between pleasure and pain. And from the vantage point that we start our yoga practice, many people come to the practice of yoga because they can't make sense of these ups and downs. It feels overwhelming. It feels like we're not really sure what it all means. And that is mirrored in our approach to the practice. We start off somewhat contrary, maybe somewhat confrontational, wondering and challenging everything that we experience. Why do we have to do this? I don't want to do that. Oh, I don't like that pose. We delete that pose. And we go through this kind of contrarian relationship. And some people do anyway. And then if you keep practicing, yoga begins to teach you how to appreciate both the highs and the lows, how to maintain a heart full of peace amidst the highs and lows. Rather than thinking that happiness lies in controlling external circumstances, the yoga practice teaches you how to locate your happiness inside of yourself in a place that can be not disturbed by the inevitable highs and lows, the ups and downs, what you could call the vicissitudes of life. From one vantage point, something may appear to be a blessing. Then that same blessing in a little while may again appear to be a curse. And then from a few, uh, from a new vantage point, maybe some years later, again, that curse may turn into a blessing. So we cannot say that everything is good or bad, but instead the yoga practice helps us train our minds so that we can locate a sense of peace, which is beyond or transcendent of the inevitable ups and downs of the mind, the inevitable ups and downs of our reactions to life, so that we don't need external circumstances to be perfect in order to maintain our peace of mind. Now, some people hear that and say, that sounds pretty boring. Sounds like I'm not going to have emotions anymore. I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be sad. Oh, no. Accordingly, you will both experience happiness and sadness. That's a natural emotional state that lives within you. And emotions, sometimes strong emotions of happiness, joy, ecstasy, sometimes strong shadow side emotions of anger, anxiety, even depression are an appropriate response to various circumstances. The difference between the vantage point of yoga versus the vantage point off the spiritual path is that yoga practice will say everything that you experience is transitory, impermanent. And there is a place of peace that can watch 
and experience the sadness as it arises. They can watch and experience the anger as it arises, watch and experience the happiness as it arises, watch and experience the joy that it arises and not be identified with it and not be attached to the good times or be uh, against the negative times. In the attitude of attachment, in the attitude of aversion, the mind locks itself into kind of a holding pattern tied into an antagonistic relationship with whatever it's either holding on to or whatever it's fighting against. <clears throat> so from the vantage point of yoga, a practice is understood to teach our minds, our bodies, you could even say our souls, how to truly remain non-attached. What does non-attachment mean? Well, you can only practice non-attachment to something that you are, in fact, quite attached to. It's a little bit like thinking about, you know, giving up or renouncing something that you have never possessed. That's extremely easy to renounce or give up. Or if someone tells you to stop eating a type of food that you already hate, this isn't a type of renunciation. This isn't a practice of non-attachment. This is like somebody doing you a favor, you know? So if you... There's a funny uh, example of that. There's a former president of the United States. I think it's a George Bush senior. And uh, I think when he was president, there was a funny uh, quote that went around um, that he was saying. He said something like, I don't like broccoli. And I'm the president of the United States. And I'm not going to eat it now. You know, and he said, I had to eat broccoli when I was growing up. And I never liked it. And I'm president of the United States. And I'm not eating broccoli. So if you ask the George Bush to give up broccoli, this would be a favor to him. He's like, oh, Mr. President, sir, we'd like you to give up broccoli as you know, a statement of renunciation, as a statement of non-attachment. He would be like, great, you're doing me a favor. So if you think about some food that you hate and then someone says to you, please renounce this food, you would say, oh, no problem. This is not non-attachment, according to you. You have to practice non-attachment to that thing which you are attached to. Now, the yoga practice helps us practice the state of non-attachment by asking you to do difficult things. So whether that's jumping back repetitively throughout the practice, whether that's getting up at a weird time of day to do the practice, whether it's that you have to do these asanas that you find really challenging and hard, that in and of itself is an act of a form of non-attachment. It allows you to let go of your ego's idea of control and then begin to let go a little bit so you can experience a, a different viewpoint, something beyond the controlling mechanism of the ego, the limited perspective of the ego. And then as you continue to practice, you change. We all do. Things change. Habits that we once thought were so you know, entrenched into the core of our being seem to slip away. And then that is an easier form of the way that the yoga practice transforms us. For example, I, when I started the practice, I was not someone who would ever get up before like 9 or 10 a.m. I was just not an early riser. If I had to do it to go to work or to a class or something like that, I would, but it would be very painful. The yoga practice was one of the first things that changed in my life was what time I woke up in the morning. And this is a way that from, you know, the original vantage point that I started practice, my original view, I thought it would be impossible to ever wake up early. Well, unfortunately for me, I fell in love with Ashtanga yoga, the most challenging and difficult 
form of yoga for rising up early in the morning. And very quickly, my entire life changed just from the mere fact that my yoga practice was scheduled at a time that I would normally be perhaps considering going to bed. And then this made a dramatic change on the life. So from the beginning, the first vantage point, oh, get up in the morning. Oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. Never did I think I would be someone from the perspective of enjoying the early morning hours before dawn. But then that changes. Now let's take it to a bigger perspective. That's something relatively easy. Understanding, you know, uh, how the yoga practice changes our lives. But as I said, when we first started this talk, things don't always make sense. From one perspective, when something happens, we can experience it as traumatic, harmful, injurious. You know, it can be something that may feel like a wrong done to us or done to the world. We might think, gosh, I don't know why this is happening. This seems awful. There's no sense to this senseless horror, senseless pain. And this happens, you know, in the microcosm of the yoga practice. Anybody has gotten an injury or anyone's been in an accident in life that somehow has harmed their yoga practice. I meet a lot of students that seem as though their practice is going quite well, only to get into some kind of a life accident, like get into a bike accident, car accident, or something like that. And then they have a hard time seeing beyond the suffering of the moment or a yoga-related injury. You're doing your yoga practice, you're trying your best, but something happens. Maybe your teacher was assisting you and went a little too far and there was an injury or you had a self-injury. You pushed yourself too hard. This happens to all of us, myself included. In that moment after, there's this feeling of why? What is this about? I don't understand. I wish this hadn't happened. It's a trauma on one level. And there are kind of different avenues that have been documented that the human being can take after a traumatic or intensive event. So you could experience the injury, life injury, or yoga injury, or some sort of pain or suffering that seems to not be fair, that seems to make no sense whatsoever. And you might experience that and say, you know, well, this is miserable. And you may continue your misery. And then you can leave with a, almost like a scar on your psyche, in your soul about the event. And it may last for a long time from that vantage point. You stay with the sensations, doesn't make sense. If you hold on to that, you end up with a feeling of bitterness, a feeling like life has shortchanged you, a feeling of you know, irresolution, of raw, unprocessed kind of uh, wound, a wound that never healed in the body and in the mind and in the soul. And this is sometimes referred to as, you know, a, a, if we experience a, a trauma in this way, and then we, after that, have a kind of negative trigger to a, in a clinical sense or in a you know, more intensive sort of sense, this is sometimes referred to as post-traumatic stress disorder when it happens into, uh, you know, in, a, in a much larger scale than what I'm talking about right now. But we can have our small stresses that never heal. And that's a possibility. If you stay with that feeling of this makes no sense, this shouldn't be like that, and you lock yourself into this against quality and don't ever find your way out, it is possible that from that vantage point, we never shift. And that's not what yoga is about. So if you keep practicing the act of moving, breathing, and going into the yoga poses, being in the space of yoga is about challenging those old wounds and bringing them up to the surface to heal. The second thing that's been documented in kind of psychological studies is when people experience a traumatic event that has the potential to change their life is that they can, after some period of time, 
return to the same level of happiness and homeostasis that they experienced prior to that trauma. So let's think about that in your yoga practice. So some people, after they have an injury, then they come back to their practice and they reestablish themselves on the same level of practice. Some people, if we take the uh, sort of negative manifestation of what I was talking about, some people, they have an injury. And then I have experienced this as some people become injured in the practice or in other, some other way, the practice was uh, challenging for them. And then and in response to that challenge, they decided to quit yoga and carry a personal beef. Uh, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. They're not carrying beef in their pockets, okay? Uh, they carry a personal uh, grudge against yoga for their entire life. Sometimes I meet people like this. You know, I'm a yoga teacher. Uh, uh, just as a uh, side note, whenever I'm not uh, involved in the yoga uh, teaching uh, role and I'm in life and somebody asks me what I do for a living, I try not to say I'm a yoga teacher because uh, then suddenly it's like, I, it's a doorway that opens for everybody to share every thought they've ever had about yoga with me. And uh, I'm not always available for this when I'm in line to buy a chai. So if it happens or in the airport, you know, I'm checking in with, oh, what do you do? I'm like, uh, so I usually say I'm an author because I feel like leave me alone. You know, as soon as I say yoga, oh, I tried yoga once. This actually happens to me. I said, I don't know, I was standing someplace. I'm cocktail party years ago before the time that we're in now. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a yoga teacher. Oh, yoga. Well, let me tell you about yoga. I was like, oh, why have I said I was a yoga teacher? I should have said that I was anything else, you know? Let me tell you about yoga. I did yoga every day for three years until I've, you know, my, until I injured myself. And then in that injury, and they went on and on about this injury and how they quit yoga because of the injury and still mad at yoga and yoga is terrible. And what do I think about that? I was like, I'm so sorry. I uh, don't have an opinion on any of this. I don't really know what's happened. And um, I um, hope you uh, heal someday. Like, oh, wait a minute. And it was like, I needed to answer now for the entire tradition of yoga. It's like, I was really just hanging out. Um, so that is an expression. I mean, actually meet a good number of people like that, that they have a grudge about yoga. They quit because they weren't able to meet whatever challenge, whatever difficulty, and, and, and evolve through it or with it. So they hold this grudge around it. So this is, again, a small, very small version of a, a kind of post-traumatic stress response where we experience a challenge, and then our response to that challenge is bitterness, negativity, uh, hard-heartedness, and we're still, it's like that wound is still within us. And you just mention the word, and you immediately go into a whole thing about it, right? So then there are other people that could have that same experience, the same exact experience. And then they reach a point where they're back to the same level of happiness before. They're back to their practice. They're you know, just continuing on the same path. Then, then there's an interesting phenomenon that has been discovered over uh, you know, the last, I don't know, 30 years of psychology, which is that for many years in uh, psychology, uh, psychologists would study the uh, negative states, why people become bitter, why people become negative after these intensive states, and what it would take to get them back to normal. And so they would give out all these surveys of people, you experienced this traumatic event, and then you now came back to normal. So some, some percentage of the population come back to normal, some percentage of the population stays in the stress response, and then they would do these surveys. It really hasn't been done in the yoga world, these were done in just like general population. 
and in, you know, in relation to environmental trauma. So if there was a major earthquake or hurricane, or if there was something else that, that could be impacting in a community, and these uh, surveys would be given to people after a period of time after that uh, specific event. They found, again, there's some people that get the post-traumatic stress disorder response. Some people return to homeostasis. Most of the energy in psychology for many years was devoted to studying the abnormality, figuring out, you know, why do these people, why do these people uh, downregulate? Why do these people go into a worse state after this? And, and some people, they expected people to return to normal because that was what the majority did, return to Why are these people going so low? And they spent a lot of time studying that. Well, there was one um, psychologist, I can't remember his name, or I think actually two of them, that started to notice that there were what, was, what, they, what they noticed as outliers. So if you have uh, uh, you know, any sort of a study, there are often what's called outliers, which means it lies outside the normal realm or the expected realm of uh, the statistics and the, the, you know, the information that's been gathered. So these outliers experienced, and they reported that after some time after the traumatic event, they were not only back to normal, but in fact, they were happier and they reported that they had more love and more peace and they felt better in their bodies and that their life was filled with more goodness than before the traumatic event. So they coined the term post-traumatic growth. So that became a new focus of study and this sort of birth of the field of psychology that we now refer to as positive psychology to study what makes those outliers outliers and how can we learn from them because do you want to be the person that after your you know your challenge your your difficulty do you want to just go back to normal or do you want to get even better do you want to let your let it your world shift so much so you can look back at that traumatic event and say you know what i wouldn't change a thing because that was the, the, the valley that led to this new peak. So I don't want to go back and remove that. That was part of my growing process. And I love who I am today. So I want to include the highs and the lows. I don't need to go back and make the world this antiseptic, perfect place and live in a bubble where everything just feeds me back an image of two one-dimensional positivity. I want to go through the highs and go through the lows so that I might be in a, a, a low valley and it might feel that there's hopelessness. It might feel like it's super dark down here, but, be, but I want to go through that because I know that it's going to lead me to another high that I'm going to learn from that, learn from the experience. This is a post-traumatic growth in, uh, experience. And then there's been a lot of um, uh, like uh, studies that actually look at that not only in the, the human condition, learn from these outliers, and there are a couple of signifiers that these uh, outliers were able to share about their experiences. It was also looked at from the perspective of Oh, the perspective of, of natural cycles. So anybody who lives in the cycles of four seasons, which we don't have here in Miami, I just arrived back to Miami. We don't have four seasons in Miami. We have hot and hotter. And uh, we have hot with humidity and hot without humidity. Okay, so it's hot and hotter and occasionally it rains. And we have one day a year that's slightly cool. And um, people from the North like to call Miami the place of fashion winter, because on that one day that it's cold, the entire state of Florida will dress up as though we are in the Arctic Circle. And we are actually cold for that day. So when we think about the four seasons, we can experience and see the necessity of growth and decay. You can experience the need for winter in those cycles of change that in that particular context, if winter 
doesn't come for the North, where that cycle is part of the inevitable changes, then that bodes very poorly for the health of that ecosystem and honestly for the health of our planet. If we look at forest regeneration cycles, now I know that what's happening in California and the western part of the United States is absolutely devastating. So here's a really good example of that, that it would be so easy right now to focus on the devastation and the loss of life. And that is absolutely horrible. And this is the trauma. Anybody living in the Western coast of the United States right now is going through a traumatic experience. That traumatic experience on an individual level, it's also experiencing on a planetary level there. However, from the cycles of nature, as science will tell you that the burning out of the forest creates the perfect fertile ground for the next cycle of growth, that if a forest fire hasn't burned in a while, it sets up the ideal, con the ideal conditions for a forest fire to be triggered by what triggered it in Southern California and in the Western coast of the US, which is that dry lightning, that that very fire burns through dried leaves and all of the foliage that shouldn't be removed from the forest, contrary to what some non-scientific opinions seem to be saying, that the idea is that it should be burned through so that that ash can form the nutrients that will create a new cycle of growth. And that without that burning cycle, we wouldn't have sustainable growth, but it's actually what lays the foundation. Another example of that is the flow of lava. When a volcanic eruption happens, it's easy to focus on the devastation. We stay focused on the devastation. We never move beyond that. We just look at all the destruction. The lava flows, destroys everything in its wake, burning homes and cars and civilizations and plants down. But the most fertile grounds almost in the entire planet are the places where lava has once flowed, depositing vital nutrients and rich rich nutrients and minerals into the soil. So that thick, dark, black ground that we see in, that you see in, you know, places like Hawaii or Bali, for example, is that volcanic soil. So while there is a cycle that leads to immense destruction, we have to understand from the perspective of post-traumatic growth, that there is a possibility from a vantage point way further in the future that we would look back to that very moment of injury, harm, and damage and say that event was the very event that produced a positive cycle of change and growth. We could look at that for ourselves individually, and we could look at that, that for nature and look at periods where nature seemed to be, you know, destructive and destroying. And we can look at that from a global social, or even a socio-political standpoint, so that from even the darkest of experiences, if we can allow ourselves to tap into the potential to slip into post-traumatic growth, rather than get stuck in the experience of bitterness, negativity, and stress, then we have the possibility to use every, every step of our journey to further our progress and evolution. Now you can't snap your fingers and make it happen like that. So this is where some people get it wrong. Like, oh, okay, this is traumatic. Immediately see the good. No, no, to go through the process. Think about the process that the forest needs to go through before it regenerates. 
there was a, uh, a, a another fire in the Joshua Tree region. I think, um, oh, maybe two thousand, early two thousands, maybe late nineties, something like this. I can't remember the name. I was I was just uh, reading about it. I think it was called the Pueblo Fire, and it burned through so many trees and was so devastating. And it took years before the sprouts of new trees were able to come through. Years before that happened. So it's not the snap of the fingers. And this is why we say in yoga, if you experience injury, keep practicing. Don't stop practicing. Keep practicing. Because you have to go through that process of, of letting the ash, you know, fall onto the floor of your own, you know, yourself and go through that process and wait for time to work inside of you so that you have the possibility to regenerate. You cannot snap the fingers. Every cycle and every experience has its own time. You don't know if it's going to take you a couple months, a couple of years, or a couple lifetimes to go through whatever process it is that you're going through. And I have to feel that this is a lesson that we can take into our world. So in the world right now, the state of devastation that is that we can see if you just read the news headlines, one bad piece of information coming after another and after another and after another, when we feel it cannot get any worse, then again, a new news headline comes in and again, it's getting worse and worse and worse. From our vantage point right now, it can be so easy to drop into depression, darkness. You know, we can start to feel helpless and hopeless. Our hearts can be heavy. Not that we should be pushing that away, but to let that in with the possibility that this is potentially a dark night of our soul, a period where the ashes of what once was have been burned down. And to sit with that feels like a loss. And to sit with that and process that, but to understand that within that loss, there is a promise of rebirth, that there is a possibility to take that very same fabric, that very same stimulus that could lead to further suffering, to take that same stimulus and lead to a true cycle of growth and evolution. And that's what I believe our purpose is in the yoga path, both as ourselves individually, once we learn our, that for ourselves individually, how can we take the experience of trauma, you know, challenge, injury, and harm, and learn to process that within ourselves so that we can transmute that to a cycle of growth, not only returning to the same level that we were at before, no, to let that be the foundation for future evolution of consciousness as an individual. Once we can do that ourselves, we can hold that potential as a model for society, and we can also live and act from that. So a couple of things that you can think about to encourage the experience of post-traumatic growth. The first thing that you could think about is purpose to ask yourself to think of what is my purpose and how can I find purpose? To live in a purposeful sense is extremely important. And this is something that we can think of as having a deep connection to a, a spiritual wisdom, regardless of what religion you follow. If um, you're familiar with the work of Viktor Frankl in man, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the discoveries that he found was that the people that had purpose were able to make sense out of senseless circumstances. If you're unfamiliar with the work of Viktor Frankl, he uh, was a psychologist that was in a concentration camp uh, during, uh, you know, uh, World War II and used that time to study uh, his fellow human beings in a truly, uh, truly um, traumatic and 
unparalleled circumstance of suffering. And one of the things that he found was those individuals who could tell a story of purpose to their suffering were able to find more meaning, uh, were able to live longer, were more likely to you know, have survived. His purpose, what he found was, I'm going to live through this to tell this story to the world to make sure it never happens again. And that kept him going, you know, in, in, in what is, uh, you know, again, um, uh, an unconscionable, uh, unbelievable experience of loss and hardship. Now, we can think about that within ourselves. Look for purpose. Look for purpose. If you don't have purpose, look for purpose. It's even a small purpose. What can that be in this moment? To share love, to share a little bit of happiness, to, you know, uh, to be a better person, to look for that moment by moment, to find a purpose. And if we lose our purpose, to take a moment and, 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 and find a new purpose, to, to, to live again, to look for that again and again, you know? And that purpose doesn't necessarily have to be a world-changing purpose. This is also important to understand. A purpose can be as simple as to smile a little bit more today to, you know, uh, be a little kinder to myself, be, you know, a small goal in that way to understand that that is meaningful. Now, um, another experience or another kind of, uh, half of the experience of post-traumatic growth is to be willing to let in an experience of joy. So some people have the, have the idea that because things are difficult, that they no longer are allowed to experience beauty or joy, that they're no longer allowed to laugh and enjoy life because, well, now life is really difficult. Then we should just, you know, uh, like how dare, how we get this feeling of guilt and how dare you be happy even in these times. So those individuals who are able to experience post-traumatic growth were able to find beauty and joy where there seemed to be no beauty and joy, even a small experience of happiness to be able to look for something each day that could brighten their moods, to look for something moment by moment that would tell the story of, of, of sort of, you know, um, transpersonal beauty, a transcendent beauty rather than, you know, just aesthetic beauty, you know, the, the beauty of a sunrise, the beauty of a flower opening, the beauty of the way that a plant can grow in ashes uh, where it looks like nothing can grow. These stories of both this combination of purpose and joy are, are two of the features that I strongly encourage you to cultivate within your practice so that you will build emotional resilience and that when your worldview gets challenged, you know, where the foundation of what you believe gets challenged, this is a, any stressful event challenges the foundation of what you believe spiritually, you know, emotionally, mentally, that you can start to remember those things. Oh, there's a purpose to what I'm going through. I might not be able to experience it from the vantage point of where I'm in right now, but I believe one day I'll come out of this dark night of my soul, this dark night of the soul, this traumatic period, this ashen ground that I stand on now. And one day it'll make sense and I'll see why I went through all of this and what it was about. There'll be a purpose to this and I will find that purpose and keep going until I find that purpose. And then number two, along the way, I'm going to remember to stop and find something joyful and beautiful every single day. I'm going to allow myself to feel happy, even if I don't feel worthy of happiness, to make that choice, to actually actively look for that. Those were two of the things that the outliers in uh, those psychological studies actually managed to do moment by moment. And I believe this is what we're here in the yoga practice to actually do. I don't care whether you put your legs behind the head or whether you jump back, it really doesn't matter to me. I also don't really care if you stay for all of the counts and every single Navasana. 
but I want to provide you with enough challenge and enough difficulty so that you can begin to do that mental work of this is difficult. What do I do when it's difficult? Do I complain? Do I, you know, find that it's horrible? Do I want to cry? Do I go into bitterness, resentment? You know, what do I do? Or am I able to come up with a purpose? Am I able to smile in this moment? I'm able to, you know, have a sense of humor in this moment because you're learning emotional resiliency in those moments. So, you know, does the practice have to be hard? I think the answer is kind of like, yes, because this laboratory called Earth that we're all here to learn this, these lessons on is hard. Another thing I'd like you to think about is that when we achieve a state of homeostasis and balance, when we achieve a state of what we could call tranquility, where everything is good, there's a part of us that wants to just stay there forever. Oh, let me just stay here where things are good. Oh, look, everything is perfectly balanced in my life. Let's just continue this period of balance forever. You know, like a long summer, you know? But the, the message that we send to our yoga teachers, for example, to the universe, for example, when we are truly in a state of harmony and balance is that the message we send is that we're ready for more. And although we would like to sustain that harmony, we think we would like to sustain that harmony and balance. We should have periods where we sustain harmony and balance because that allows us to really integrate whatever lessons we've been learning on our path. There's a moment, again, when that sends a signal that we're ready for more. We've learned whatever lessons we're meant to learn. We've gone through that. So now that's a signal, ready for more. You know, There's nothing like being a yoga student looking bored in your practice that can attract the attention of your teacher. If everything is so easy for you and you jump back, you jump through and you look so bored, you're hardly breaking a sweat. I guarantee you, yoga teachers can come over to you and be like, try this, do this, point your foot a little bit more, do this, do that, do that, give you all this technique. And then you might look around the room and say, nobody else is doing all of that. Why do I have to do that? Then my teacher did not tell this student to point their toes. My teacher did not tell that person to go through that. They all have it easy. Look, that one's not even doing chaturanga. And I got yelled at for, for coming out of chaturanga too quickly. Life is not fair for me. And we could go into, again, that period of why is this happening to me? Poor me. I can't believe it. Life is miserable. Life should always be fair. Blah, blah, blah. We go into that. Or we you know, can learn those lessons. How can I experience this as a chance to rise up and go through that? Now, the best teachers will allow the students to go through periods of challenge, periods of uh, you know, challenge and growth, and periods of integration and homeostasis. So that we can experience both of those, you know, parts where we're building up, we're breaking down, we're going through, we're balancing, we're integrating. And a good student will also allow themselves to go through those periods with recognition of each part to the journey. So whatever vantage point we're viewing the world from right now, if you feel overwhelmed, particularly if you feel helpless and hopeless, if you feel that the world is a dark, scary place, or, you know, like if... Um, you watch the Game of Thrones if you feel like the night is long and full of terrors and there's no way out and there's no one to save you, you know, then what you can do is you can flip your perspective and change your vantage point and say, well, a hundred years from now, imagine if we looked at this moment like this, so that instead of being in the now of the ashes and the falling down and the brokenness of the moment, you can switch your vantage point and say, 100 years from now, imagine if the world looked at 2020 as the time when we made a shift, as a time when we woke up 
and truly changed our direction. Imagine if we looked at this vantage point and all of the suffering so many people have experienced, so many communities are sitting with during this year. And imagine, imagine if they, in the history books it was written as this was a time when a new world peace treaty came into the hearts of every, of every human being. Imagine if the generation that was born during this time was, was truly committed to kindness and peace and compassion on a global scale, taking care of each other and taking care of the planet like has never been seen on this planet before. So when you're stuck into a place of where we are now and the suffering is too overwhelming, switch your vantage point so you can find a purpose. Cast yourself out 100 years in the future. If 100 years doesn't work, cast it out a 1,000 years into the future you know, and, and, and look at it from that perspective. Whenever you're caught in, that, in the ashes, we have a unique potential to be able to retell the story and switch your vantage point so we can experience purpose. We can experience the emotions of what it's like on the other side. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be experiencing the loss, the grief, the sadness, the anger, the anxiety of the moment, but it means that we will have a purpose, a light at the end of the tunnel. We will have a, 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 a firm foundation planted in the light that's promised at the end of the, the, the darkest of nights. So you learn that in the yoga practice, you can apply that in your life. Learn that in your yoga practice, apply it, in, apply it in your life. If you have an injury and the injury doesn't feel like it doesn't heal, then you cast yourself out in the future. One day, I know I'm going to learn something from this. You know, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the other side of this and I'm going to, you know, be able to understand if you have a shoulder injury better how my shoulder works. Even though it's difficult right now, one day I'm going to look back on this and it's going to inform my teaching. It's going to inform my body. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to get through this and it'll give you, again, it'll give you purpose. Practice that within yourself and then practice that in your life, no matter what difficult, distressful situations you find yourself in. And you do that without invalidating or pushing away or repressing the, you know, the intensity of what you're feeling right now so that you can, you know, you can go through that. Well, that's what I wanted to share with you uh, for today. And we have a little bit more time. So if you have any questions, you're welcome to type those into the chat. And I uh, will call up the chat and get through as many questions as I can in the, the time that we have remaining. Um, we have a, another practice after. Um, and I hope you had a good practice today. So I will give you a moment to type anything you feel like typing. And uh, again, these, uh, maybe there's already something there that I have not seen. <laughs> yes, I have woken up very early today, but I have benefited from the jet lag. So, but I have been very tired this morning, actually, <laughs> thinking of my purpose in waking up and sharing this uh, practice to give sense to the darkness <laughs> of the night, which I have definitely experienced. It was very dark this morning. Now the sun has risen. No questions today? It's okay if there are no questions. We also have the afternoon class. We can have questions in the afternoon class as well. Maybe everyone's hungry. Oh, Paulina has asked the question. I paid her to ask this question. She said, can you say a little bit about your book? <laughs> definitely. I can uh, definitely share about my book. Uh, maybe I, maybe I, I don't have a copy of it. It's in the other room. Um, so my new book is called Get Your Yoga On. And uh, this is a very exciting book for me 
because this is the first book that I have written from the true paradigm of making the practice of yoga accessible. And I wanted to straddle the uh, divide between very traditional practice, which can seem exclusionary and seem as though uh, it's only for a select few whose bodies are extremely capable and able to perform these uh, really difficult asanas. And the you know feeling of what many people sit with every day is the feeling of ordinariness in our body, the feeling of, I don't know how I'm going to do that, this practice not for me, the feeling of, I don't look like the images of what I see in the yoga world. So for the first time, I've had the intention of making the practice truly accessible for everyone. So instead of just me doing the yoga poses, which I've always done in my other books, I worked with real yoga students, people that have been practicing for a while, people who are brand new to the practice, and really sought to uh, include a true diversity of students, different sizes, shapes, and ages, and different levels of proficiency in the practice, so that the 30 asanas that are presented in the book are presented from the paradigm of true accessibility, so that there's a way that Anybody, literally any, anyone's body can uh, do the pose, or you could say it another way, so that any asana can be adjusted to fit anyone's body, so that you can do that inner work of the practice to provide just enough challenge so you can be, you know, experience growth and just enough ease so that you can still experience a joy. And so we go through these 30 asanas, and uh, whether you're a brand new student of yoga uh, this is going to be a really good intro to the practice of yoga. If you're a teacher of yoga and you've always wondered how to modify the asana for, you know, an older student, a bigger bodied student, someone that you just can't understand how they, how they could ever do the practice, then there's a lot of tools in the book for that. I also wanted to include uh, some real talk about what the promise of yoga is. So the book starts off with um, a, a discussion about what the promise of yoga is. And I want to be real clear that it's not a quick fix. It's not the, I'm not making a promise that, you know, with the wave of a magic wand, you're going to, you know, do a perfect handstand, get the biggest house on the block and, you know, be the envy of all of your neighbors. The promise of yoga is that your inner journey over many years of practice will deepen, that that state of inner happiness will start to deepen over many years of practice, but that you have to practice. And that this is a practice that'll be with you in the highs and will be with you in the lows and will be measured not in the performance of asanas, but be measured in that state of harmony within you, and the practitioners, and the students, and the yoga. I also have a short discussion of the history of yoga because I find it problematic that uh, in the Western world, many people don't know that yoga's roots are uh, from India. And I feel that there is a lot of, um, you know, what you could say or what, you know, contemporarily called cultural appropriation well, you know, that seems to be a, I don't know, a little bit of a vicious word sometimes. So I, I think sometimes there's a little bit of just um, innocent ignorance that people need to be educated about. And, uh, uh, you know, on, on some levels, there are some students that they just genuinely don't know where yoga comes from. So I want to make sure that in the book that there is a discussion of India's historic roots. Now, any large kind of multinational corporations that are you know, profiting off of yoga and removing yoga's roots. I feel like that is a true act of cultural appropriation where, you know, uh, members of a dominant group of a society take the imagery and iconography and, you know, heritage of a, another culture and then turn it into a product. Uh, this is a true, truly heinous and harmful act of cultural appropriation. Unfortunately, there are a lot of businesses out there. They're kind of doing that. 
So I'm hoping that the that the student of yoga is a new student of yoga that may be attracted to some of the imagery of yoga, just interested in changing their lives. When maybe they can pick up a copy of my book and read that introduction and realize, hey, yoga comes from India. Wow, that's interesting. Now let me honor uh, the cultural roots of India rather than thinking, you know, that yoga was invented by some Western person, you know, who works in a gym, something like that, or you know, that even worse, that like yoga is, um, you know, the controlled by some, I don't know, multinational clothing company or something like this. And, you know, we have to think like, wait a minute, yoga comes from India. It's super important for everybody to realize. I, mean, I, I uh, got that right from the beginning because in my, one of my very first um, experiences of Ashtanga yoga, I walked into a room and there were these pictures of what I thought were deceased Indian sadhus on the wall. And um, I got that they weren't living. They were all black and white pictures. That's just my ignorance. You know, I assumed that every black and white picture meant like that person has been passed away for a long time, yeah, you know, from the <laughs> generation of color photos, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. And, um, and I remember uh, talking uh, to someone saying you know, that they said they pointed a picture. Oh, we're going to go and, you know, practice with this man in India. And I just thought they exist. They're alive. Wow, so cool. So from my from, from the very beginning of my practice journey, I really understood that there was a lineage, even though I didn't have the word lineage, I, I got it. Well, this is a teacher, you know, this is a tradition of some type. And I went to India and got in steeped in the tradition from within less than a year of when I started practicing Ashtanga yoga. So my entry into the yoga world is um, you know, happened before there was uh, so much of what you could say commercialization of yoga, so much of uh, popular cultural image of yoga. And um, I'm grateful for that. And I, I want to carry that through to the next generation of students as much as possible. So I hope everybody enjoys, you know, the book. Okay, I see that there were some, <clears throat> some questions have maybe kind of, maybe there's one more question. So Santa has asked a question. Do you still experience challenges now in your yoga practice, given my years of practice and experience? Oh, yes. The practice is constantly hard. It's uh, changing, hard and changing. So I have a daily yoga practice. I also have a daily sitting practice. And uh, every day there are challenges. One of the biggest challenges uh, sometimes is just to actually practice, you know? This is the practice. I have to practice. Oh, you know, this is something that over this year, Many students all over the world experience. The biggest problem with practice is that I need to practice because you're sitting at home all day. Everybody's at home. Oh, I'm at home. You know, and then the, uh, you go to the yoga studio. Then there's an experience. There's a cultural community experience. You go there. Somebody's waiting for you. You meet your friend there. There's an experience. Now we're all at home. Who's looking at you if you're not practicing? You know, you go from one room to the other room. Or you go, if you have a studio, then apartment, something like this, you go from one side of the room to the other side of the room. And it's a little deflating. You're like, oh, now I'm in front of the refrigerator. Time to do yoga, you know? Now I'm in the other corner of the room. Oh, guess I should practice. So it's a challenging. And I have that too, you know? I feel sometimes unmotivated to practice. I feel, oh, this is boring, you know? And this is, uh, you know... And then at some moments you end up feeling like, oh, you have this image of what practice once was, you know? Oh, it used to be so good. Now, hmm, interesting. So we have this, uh, so I sit with that as well. Not to mention there are still lots of asanas that are just difficult for me. The sitting practice is constantly providing a wonderful challenge. You know, I sit for an hour before I do my asana practice. Uh, and uh, that's a constantly a challenge. Even if uh, the asana practice is a, it can be entertaining on some level, 
for those of you that joined the meditation last night, uh, you know, meditation as a, as a practice is a really deep mirror of the subtlest qualities of mind. Sometimes, yes, you sit and it's a wonderful experience, but the sitting sometimes is even harder than the, um, you know, uh, asana practice. At least in the asana practice, you're involved in, you change positions. The sitting, you don't change position. You know, you're bored in some asana. You take five breaths, you move on with your life. But the sitting, you just sit there <laughs> until it's over. And sometimes at one hour, it can feel like five days have passed by. You know, this is that one hour, the amount of like process that goes through in the minds. It's like, oh, that at one hour. Oh, wonderful. That has been five days of my life. And I, I sit Vipassana and uh, they do these 10 day retreats. And I have this feeling sometimes when I'm in the retreat, like one day feels like one year. Like it feels literally like, I'm not trying to scare you. You know, don't be scared. If you're interested in doing the retreat, go do the retreat. But the one, I feel the end of one day, I feel like I have just learned the equivalence and experienced and gone through on a personal growth level from the time I woke up this morning to the time I'm going to bed now, the equivalence of what I would have learned in one year of my life, in one day of experience. I and mean, that's a gift. It sounds like, oh, that was a long day, you know? But that, the, the, you know, the depth that I reached and that was quite intense. So it's definitely challenges all the time. Life is providing constant challenges, constant lessons, constant cycles. So I'm still going through it too. So hmm, any advice for students wishing to go practice in Mysore? Well, Jen, I don't know because uh, India is like going uh, kind of bonkers with the COVID situation. So uh, nobody knows when anybody can go to India again. But my advice to you is if you want to go to India and especially to Mysore and practice Ashtanga Yoga, just go. You don't need to be a really advanced practitioner. I went when I could barely do a headstand and, you know, I could barely do half the asanas. I certainly I could barely do a chaturanga and I showed up in India and I love that. Some people got this idea, oh, I'm going to wait until I'm really good in the practice to go. No, no. As soon as the country is open and the shala is open, if you want to go, you go. When are you ready to go? When you want to go. That's all. I think it personally, I think it's better to go before you have too many concepts of what the practice is. Because then if you go when you kind of know what the practice is, then you're constantly, then you, you know, then it's like sometimes you, you, you become too much of an expert. I think it's really good to enter any sort of a teaching circumstance with the beginner's mind and you can cultivate the beginner's mind or you can go as a true beginner. And um, I think going as a true beginner is a really good blessing. All right. We've got the one more question. How many hours a day do you do your personal practice aside from teaching? Well, as I already shared, I sit for one hour in the morning. And then after the one hour of sitting, then I take a little break, go to the bathroom, uh, drink some water usually. And if I'm very tired, I have another cup of tea. But usually I try just to drink a little water. And then I start the asana practice. Asana practice, hour, hour and a half, depending on what series I'm working on. Um, and then that's kind of my morning practice. In the evening, I have another sitting practice. Um, you know, I don't sit as long in the evening, but I try, I do a minimum five minutes. Sometimes if I have a good discipline, I can do up to half an hour in the afternoon. But what I've tried to make a commitment to myself over the last uh, two years is that whatever length of time I spend in asana, I want to spend the same length of time sitting because I felt that there's a transition in my spiritual journey, my path. But I start to really feel that the work that I'm putting in, in terms of sitting is impacting my life and even my asana practice in such a way so that uh, I really feel that I need to mirror the work in asana with the sitting. 
Now, if we're talking about like physical health and stretching this and stretching that, that's something else. I don't know, after more than 20 years of practice, to be honest with you, I enjoy moving and doing things, uh, but my spiritual journey for me is very, very internal and subtle right now. I think it's really important to keep the body healthy. So I try to eat as healthily as possibly and, you know, use asana to maintain that, you know, the base level of health and healing in the body and also to bring up, you could say, some 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 mirrors of challenges that I'm going through. Um, but uh, I, I really start to feel that the that the depth of my spiritual journey is starting to make a transition more into uh, the you know the sitting practice. But I'm uh, I'm I'm want to keep that commitment to mirror the same length of time sitting at the same length of time uh, doing asana. I feel it's a really great uh, combination, a really great mix. Please don't take that on. It's taken me 20 years to get to that point. So for those of you that are interested in doing a five-minute sitting practice a day, I started there 20 years ago. It may take a long time if you want to make that transition. So I really recommend, like, again, time is an important part of any process. Okay, good. So uh, let's uh, let's do the uh, few lines of the Guru Shlotram, and then we'll end our session, take a little break, and come back and do a lot of uh, squeezing and lifting. <laughs> good. Hands in prayer. Ooh. Guru Brahma. Guru Vishnuhu, Guru Devo Maheshwaraha, Guru Sakshat Parabrahma, Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha. Thank you very much, everyone. Namaste. Thank you so much. Super. Lots of love. Be coming back uh, in an hour, then I'll see you in about an hour, and we do strengthening and jumping here and there. Otherwise, I hope you have a good day, and I see you again. Keep practicing. Bye! Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.